If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Today's chat's been brought to you by International Horse College. We have a mission to improve the welfare of horses throughout the world through the safe education of riders, handlers and trainers and that's what these chats are all about. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Welcome to Horse Chats and today we're very honoured to have Simon Curtis. Simon's almost, oh, almost farrier royalty I think. So I'll tell you a little bit about him before I introduce him. Dr. Simon Curtis has been a practicing farrier in Newmarket for 44 years. He's lectured and demonstrated farriery in more than 30 countries or six continents, including the USA, Australia, India, Russia, and Brazil. He's the author of four textbooks on farriery, and he's been published in numerous journals. He's also the only farrier to have been awarded an honorary associateship of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. He's a past master of the Worshipful Company of Farriers and he's chaired the Farriers Registration Council. He's a fellow of the Worshipful Company of Farriers by examination and is currently an examiner. He's, this is why I think he's royalty because he's fourth generation farrier and his family have been farriers and blacksmiths on the Cambridge and Suffolk border for at least 150 years. He was inducted into the International Farriers Hall of Fame at Kentucky Derby Museum and he's got a first degree as a Bachelor of Science in Farriery through Myerscough College and University of Central Lancashire. And he's completed a PhD degree in equine physiology and biomechanics. And he's been presented with the Sir Colin Spedding Award for his contribution to equine knowledge and his first book, which was, I think, The Hoof of the Horse, but he's got a couple of other books that we'll talk to him about as well. Now, how are you, Simon? I'm all right, thank you. I don't know how you did that without uh, drawing breath, but um, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm great. We've got a lovely sunny morning here and a uh, nice spring morning in England. So, uh, yeah, all is good. Good. I keep thinking of summer in England, you know, summer in the UK when everyone's out there going, oh, isn't it hot, isn't it hot? I'm just thinking of it being a nice winter day at home. So the weather's quite different. Yes, I know that. I, that's That's certainly true, but... We appreciate it more, I think, because it's uh, we don't have so much good weather as you do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, Simon, you know I'm going to ask you about your favourite quote to get us started. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your favourite quote and why it's your favourite quote? All right. Well, I'll tell you the quote first and then, then I'll tell you why it's my sure. favourite quote. From William Shakespeare, Richard III, and Richard III says at the end of the Battle of Bosworth, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that paints him. So it's, all right, it's a horse quote, but it's not about the horse, is it? It's about him, and it paints him as a coward who's prepared to give up his kingdom just to escape the battle. <laughs> and, of course, the exact opposite was true. So you've got to remember that William Shakespeare was writing for the winner of that battle, Henry Tudor's daughter, Elizabeth I. Okay. And if you have got, if you want some propaganda written, then use the best English writer ever. And, of course, uh, Richard III was a good king, and he uh, died in a glorious charge 
to try and win the battle and get to Henry Tudor. <laughs> and apparently he got within five or ten yards of him. And so he died heroically. But, of course, when it came to the Tudors, they were still insecure and they they had to paint this picture of Richard III being this awful king <laughs> who killed the princes in the tower, which isn't true either, and uh, died as a, as a coward. But there you go. Ah, oh. <laughs> a bit of English history. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay, now, you being a farrier, did you have any brothers? I mean, were you always going to be a farrier or a blacksmith? Was that was that something that was always expected of you or did you just decide one day that you were going to go along this career path? How did that all come about? Okay. Um, no, I came from this Farrier family, Farrier mm-hmm. Blacksmith family. Yes. And I reached 16 at school and uh, I, was, I went to quite a good school but I wasn't a very good pupil. I was a typical boy that lots of 16-year-old boys are like that. Mm-hmm. So my school didn't expel me but at the end of the 16 year old exams they suggested that I might like to try something else rather than come back at the end of the, of the summer break and uh, so I spoke to my father and I'd not shown the slightest interest and he said well you better come down the forge and I started and from the moment I started I was fascinated by the craft so uh, it was the best thing that happened to me but it, it didn't I wasn't one of these boys and my younger brother who still shoes horses, you know, from 11 years old was taking shoes out of the back of my father's van and nailing them to trees and practising that, you know, and that's all he ever wanted. So he did slightly resent it for a while because he said, you were never going to be a farrier. Why did you do it? Because, of course, I was two years older, so I'd got in before him. Yep, yep. And then I had an older brother, Mark, who has now had to retire because of ill health, but he... He stayed on at school, so he was only a year older, so he started the year after me. So three of us started uh, within three years. Mm. And when we went to the forge at that time, there was my father there and three uncles. So there were seven Curtises shoeing from the same forge, um, and that was went on for quite a few years, and wow. plus a, a, quite a few other farriers. So it was quite mm. something. We, I think uh, it's quite rare for farriers that sort of number, and we had... 13 fires in the forge. Yep. All I can say is thank goodness it wasn't Queensland because (laughs) when those, all 13 of them were going, in an era where nobody thought about ventilation or anything, it was really hot and, of course, sulfurous fumes and noise. Wow. Um, And, uh, but, you know, it was was a great introduction. And we were, we were shoeing top, mainly it was mainly racehorse shoeing, but we had to hand make all our own shoes. You'd, you couldn't buy them then, mm-hmm. hence all, all the fires going. And um, it, it was a great introduction, but I was slightly spoilt because we were shoeing some of the best racehorses there were. And so I just thought that was normal. You know, as, as you do when you're that age, you just think that's what everybody does. Yep. But it yep. isn't. Yep. It's only looking back I realised how special it was. Yes, yes. Now, just go over this name, the blacksmith and the farrier, and because the farrier, the blacksmith used to be like the village blacksmith that did yeah. a lot of other things, wasn't it, besides shoeing horses? Is that right? And yeah, now it's the you, farrier you, is you, just horses? In what way is it that we call ourselves farriers and everybody else calls us blacksmiths? <laughs> okay. Um, well, okay, they, they both come from the same root. I mean, farrier comes from ferrous, you know, mm-hmm. iron, yep. and blacksmith, 
well, is to smite iron. And, you know, yes. a silversmith smites silver and a blacksmith smites iron. So mm -hmm. they come from the same background. But the thing was, they were two fairly separate trades. The only thing that links us is that in order to make shoes, you have to learn some blacksmithing. And um, so the reason the name change was that Farrier used to sort of mean horse doctor as well. Okay. And when the vet, uh, when the vets in the UK, uh, they weren't, they were founded in 1790, and they actually went out of their way to eradicate the term farrier because it it sort of meant horse doctor, and they didn't want these horse doctors because they were the doctors now. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what happened. So even the worshipful company of farriers, whose main membership back then was was vets. Yes. They, when we had an exam for farriers, we called it RSS, registered shoeing smith. So they wouldn't even use the term farrier in our exams. And <laughs> and, uh, and we didn't get that term until uh, the 20th century. So it is funny. And um, it's almost come full circle where um, a couple of times I've heard blacksmiths described as farriers, you know, when they're making an iron gate. Or oh, something, okay. Yep. Yep. So in other words, a farrier has to have blacksmithing skills, but when they work on the horse, they are a farrier. That's yes, the, yes, okay. Yeah. Now, if someone wants to, you know, they, they might ask you about commencing an apprenticeship, starting off, you know, saying, I'd like to be a farrier, I'd like to do this. Do they have to have experience with horses or what sort of skills, what sort of person would you meet that you think, you know, yes, this person, I mean, you might interview 20 people, but what are you looking for for someone that you would um, say this person's got a career as a farrier or as a blacksmith? Okay, well, I I trained about 30 apprentices in my career, mm -hmm. so I sort of had some experience taking them on. And I'd have to say, all bar two or three of them, I'm still extremely proud of their work and very proud of what they've achieved. So so I did sort of get some goodness. But, um, I I always think if you're going to give a four-year apprenticeship, then an interview is not long enough. So by letter, mm -hmm. um, I would select three to do a week's trial because okay. they say if they're going to spend the four years with you, then then the week's the least you need. Mm. And in a week, um, people can't really hide their, um, uh, their vices, shall we say. You know, I mean, the, the, but the most important thing to me was motivation. Because motivation overcomes everything. Yes. You know, we know some people have a natural gift mm -hmm. and they're lucky. But sometimes people with a natural gift are lazy. And then you have people who have no nat or less natural gift, and uh, but they're hardworking and motivated. And they're the ones that in the end achieve. You know, I've, I've had chaps who it came naturally to them, um, trimming and chewing, but they weren't motivated, so they never actually got any better. They got good enough to be an okay farrier. And I used to take that view with them. I used to think, and I used to tell them that if I realised that I was more interested in their apprenticeship than they were, then I stopped being interested. So I had lots of motivated ones, and um, I only finished last February training. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I've even had um, one of my ex-apprentices uh, shod in... Um, in New South Wales for quite a while. Oh, wow. And, and yeah. Both yeah. Sort of what was his Another name? Another one, uh, Danny Planis. Okay. So Danny's back home here now, but um, I think that's more to do 
with the lady that wanted to come home or, <laughs> or he met one from anyway you know the way it is so sure. it drew him back here but um yes i had a chap and funny enough another one that's back that was the the second farrier in, in the singapore turf club lots all over the place you know middle east and uh, and and they get the jobs because they're, they're good at it. oh i um one in japan working for shadai which is the biggest yeah. stud farm in the world yeah. Yeah. and yeah. and he was almost headhunted in fact he was headhunted before he was old enough because the Japanese won't allow you in unless you have 10 years experience. And at 24, they they wanted him to go out there. And we tried everything to sort of make the facts fit their immigration forms and they knew. And so he had to wait two years and uh, still waited and he's still, so he's been out there about 18 months now. And, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, so, so I've had lots of good apprentices, but that is the thing, it's motivation because you know, it's a tough old thing shoeing horses, and and it's a tough thing apprenticeship. Most of our apprentices um, are not, uh, should we say, you know, well educated. They don't come from well educated background, and I can say that because, as I say, I departed school or, or separated from school at sixteen. Mm-hmm. And um, but you know, they have to really learn their anatomy and physiology from the knee and hock down to the to the level of a veterinary surgeon. You know, and yes. um, so they they do have some quite tough schoolwork, and it is quite amazing these these and it's mainly young men. I mean, we we I have trained girls. The girls are great; they're conscientious and they do the bookwork. But the boys, of course, don't. But you know, they're so interested in the job that it, it sort of turns them around, and they actually suddenly become you know quite erudite just on this little you know this very small range of knowledge you know I say small but very precise range of knowledge and they actually work really hard at it the colleges uh, you know we have three farrier schools attached to colleges and they never stop telling us that all the other students you know as soon as that they can get home they they leave you know 4 30 in the (laughs) afternoon so we have to kick the farriers the farrier apprentices out you know they have complaints that they won't leave so it is (laughs) And you get that all our schools, and you'll get that all over the world. So it's funny you get they get intrigued by the job, and it changes them, you know, mm. just, just like it did me. Really, I know maybe I am the ultra nerd, but um, <laughs> I'm I'm not I'm not unique. You know, there's quite a few other farriers have pushed on and gone back to university and done or gone to university. You know, that was never part of the plan for me. Mm. And, um, anyway, and they go to university. I mean, because you're an author as well, you know, so you're not just oh, well, I've done a bit more than what a lot do. You know, what is it that, you know, you said you're an ultra nerd. Is that what it is, that that you're more conscientious than everyone else? You want to work harder? You want to keep achieving? Is that what makes it that you <laughs> go on and keep writing and lecturing and examining and everything else? I met an old schoolmate at a reunion mm. and he said, Simon, what's happened to you? You weren't like this at school. <laughs> Don't know, and you know that's two sixty-year-old blokes having a chat. And, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I. Uh, well, of course, you said my book, "The Hoof of the Horse." That's actually my latest book. That oh, came is out. It? Okay, okay. I mean, that, that's one of the reasons I'm getting all these invites. It often happens. It triggers mm-hmm. people. It's this virtuous circle that people see the books. They think, "Oh, we'll get him to come and speak and and mm-hmm. or do demonstrations." And then that sort of sells more books, which, you know, so that, that's the way it works in a virtuous circle. But yep. my first book was uh, Farrier Refolder Racehorse. So that was 
specialist and i wish wish i hadn't had the racehorse in it which you know because a foal's a foal it doesn't matter what breed mm, mm. and that that was 20 years old in in february and it wow. still sells mm. i wouldn't have ever believed it would have um done that and uh not back then you know i just thought it'd be a little niche book and it was the book in my heart you know they say everybody's got a book in them i think they probably mean a novel well, I, I didn't have a novel. I had this, um, you know, I tried to write about all the things that affect the horse's hooves and legs from from when they're born and as they develop. And actually, that's still my interest because that was the main core of my PhD. You know, so okay. uh, obviously I have to have all sorts of skills of, of, of older horses and, and conditions. But, it, you know, that's been the heart of my work has been young horses and, and how we can help them. And mm-hmm. uh, so, so it's, again, it is a circle. It's how the leg influences the foot, but how, if you do good work on the foot, you can help the leg. Yes. So, in other words, you you have a horse with, and no horse has perfect conformation, even the best. Mm-hmm. So they're all putting their hooves slightly out of shape, and so it's how much you can keep the hoof in shape, but also support the leg, and and you know because as horses get older. There's most conformational faults actually become worse, just like they do for us. You know, if you yep. lean over on one foot or leg, then, then you know, after 30 years of doing that, then that lean's got worse and the, mm-hmm. the joints stretched one side and compressed the, the other side. And, and it's the same with horses. So, um, so that, that's really been my interest over the years. Yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking when you first started, you know, you, I'm sure your father and your uncles would have had a huge influence on you. Um, you know, just being there and working with them the whole time. But is there anyone else that you'd like to say that you think's influenced you, helped you with your career? Yes, I would, and he's Australian, actually. Okay. And uh, uh, Professor Chris Pollitt, who's oh, up yeah. at Brisbane. Yep. I don't know whether you've interviewed him, Glynis, but you should do. Anyway, okay. um, he's, um, you know, there's, I mean, he's done so much for laminitis. I always say he knows more about the horse's hoof than the rest of us put together and he but so much for laminitis and I, I know I think he's slightly disappointed that he hasn't found the answer you know and maybe nobody ever will but he certainly found more out about laminitis than any of us ever knew mm-hmm. I tell every farrier that's even semi-nerdy to get his 1998 paper on the horse's hoof I said if that's the only thing you read you know three three or four thousand words yep then then you know, you'll learn more from that than anything else so so i obviously because of the distance between us i've probably only spoken to him eight or ten times but we we did a thing together last year in in china in beijing of all places for the mm. world wine veterinary association we did a day uh, on the horse's hoof a practical day and uh you know, he's always a pleasure to work with. He's one of these people that's got two brains, but um, he's an absolute pleasure to speak to and work with. And you know. Anyway, so he's he's been quite an influence uh, on me, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Good, good. If you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor, or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now. Have a look horsechats.com. Now, I'm thinking about horses and, you know, you might want to bring in a case study or something. I'm sure you would have had a lot to do with 
I don't know, hundreds and thousands, I don't know how many, you know, horses over your career. Because it's not just the horses you work with then, it's the horses that your apprentices work with and, um, you yeah. know, I suppose being in a forge with your uncles and your brothers, you know, there's lots of horses coming and going. But is there a, a horse that you'd like to tell us about that, you know, you've been able to fix you, but, you know, something, some sort of a case study that you'd like to okay. talk well, about? Yeah, well, the, the the worst type of laminitis is sinkers, which is, in other words, they're not just rotating the bone and losing the, the connection with the front of the hoof, they're losing all the connection. Mm-hmm. So, cause of course, the horse is a single-toed animal, which makes it unique. Um, it's got nowhere to go, nowhere to put the pressure. So a sinker is, is actually the whole bone column just dropping into the bottom of the hoof, and then it crushes its blood supply. And as I always say, they... Actually, horses don't die of laminitis, uh, although they have this, that's the second biggest killer. It's because they're in such pain, we have to put them down. So yes. I had a, a mare on one of my big stud farms, and uh, uh, she was a sinker. And we did the very simple thing, because everybody's looking for complicated answers. And we gave a digital support, in other words, padded the bottom of her foot so she was more comfortable. And stood her in a stable for two months, and then then had her in a barn which was probably only twenty by thirty meters on a mm-hmm. on a wood chip floor, and she was there for another six, eight, or nine months with me, not actually doing much myself. But from my experience of sinkers, by and large, I mean this might sound quite hard, but we used to say you can either mess about with them for two months and shoot them or shoot them straight away, because it's just, you know, there's not really the answer. But anyway, this mare survived. And and uh, the stud farm then said to me, you know, I was so happy, and, and oh. she, was, she was a kind mare to work on, which might help, and I just liked her so much. And then, you know, in the, um, shall we say, the harsh commercial world of um, top thoroughbred breeding, they said... I said, well, you know, she can actually go out now. She's really done well and, you know, she's ready to start going out in a small paddock at first yeah. and then progress. Yeah. You can probably have a foal next year and or be put in foal this year. And they said, no, we've decided, we're, you know, she's going to be put down. And I'm saying, <gasps> all that work. Oh, no. So I actually said, and, uh, you know, well, I'll have her and, uh, you know, I'll take her. And, and, you know, they actually said, yeah, but we expect you to pay a little bit for it. I'm thinking, this is the horse that was going to be put down, you know, three yeah, minutes yeah. ago. Now, yes. uh, so I probably paid about a tenth of her value. She was a horse I'd have never been able to afford. Mm-hmm. She wasn't at the super top, but she was all right. You know, she'd come from a good line. And um, and uh, anyway, I had her for six years, and we had four folds. And one of them was really a pretty good horse. It just didn't quite make it to the very, very top. but. I think it won seven races out of 17. And um, actually the real embarrassing thing was it was brought to me to shoe when it was a three-year-old because it had such poor hooves. And I found it hard to tell the trainer that I'd actually bred it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because I thought, how bad is this? Um, And I was gluing shoes on. This was on the early days of gluing shoes because it had such poor hooves. But it was a good big racehorse as well. And um, anyway, so... I I had her for six years. She had four foals, and then she finally got another attack of laminitis. And do you know what? I thought, I'm not going to be like 
the one more foal owners that I'm afraid I've had to work with occasionally. Mm-hmm. And I said, I tell you what, when we wean this latest foal, she can have three months in the sun and then uh, and then she can go and meet her maker. So, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, and I thought, well, she had six years more life and, and a good life, you know, yes. an honour. And um, so I haven't owned many horses. I'm not like most farriers, and um, <laughs> that isn't the only one, but that was she was quite special to me, really. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot on her. I learned that actually Sinkins can survive yes, and can go on and have quite a few years. The, the problem is I think any horse has laminitis if it's, if it's actually in its athletic career. Mm. However well you do, they never again reach that athletic peak at whatever level they were at, you know. Yep. But, of course, with a broodmare, as long as she's happy enough and sound enough, which is what she reached, you know, yep. she'd gallop around at it. <laughs> And uh, but she had the poorest shaped feet you'd ever seen because you know so much damage had been done. So, so that was you know that that's really one of my favourites over the years. Yeah, yeah. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot off the press notification. That is that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available, and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry. If you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 careers in the horse industry button to receive your free career book imagine maybe one day you could be a guest on horse chats i'm thinking about your proudest moment simon but i'm sure you know even even just what i read out about you earlier on there's so many proud moments there you know is Mm. it is it these proud moments or is it you tell me is there one proud moment that stands out from the rest or is it a group or whatever I think probably, I mean, because it's fresh in my memory, the Sir Colin Spedding Award was nice because that was the horse owners. That is not, or the horse industry. And mm-hmm. it's the non-thoroughbred horse industry. And it's the top meeting of the year that's given by, it was, but for the UK, it was almost like the Oscars of um, the horse world. Yep. So just to be nominated was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I was a little bit surprised they actually told me uh, in the morning, I thought it was going to be a total, you know, just like the Oscars, the nominations. Obviously, I was told I was nominated. And um, uh, anyway, I, it, it was wonderful. I had one of my daughters there with me. And, um, uh, yeah, so that's very proud. And, I, you know, I always think you've got to live up to that now. But I think the other thing was, um, you, you know, you mentioned my honorary associate at the Royal College mm. of Veterinary Surgery, and yeah. I'm still only, only farrier to get that. And they, the way the vets put it is it, it's um, the highest award that they can give to non-vets. So um, it tends to be people that have either made some scientific or helped scientifically for vets yep. when they're not vets or actually given them lots of money, you know, funded. Uh, yes, yes. So I was, a, I was slightly separate to that. Uh, yeah, I, I just thought about, you, you've got to remember that I, I always think about vets as equine vets. Mm-hmm. Because that's what I deal with. But in, in the UK, there's about 3,000 of them, and there's about 17,000 
non-equine-vets, you know, cats, yes. dogs, whatever, um, yep. abattoir, the, you know, farm animal. And, of course, I sometimes imagine there, there would have been this board meeting or the council, as they call it, and uh, somebody would have said, uh, you know, I think we should give this farrier this award, and there'd be another vet there that'd say, what's a farrier? And, um, <laughs> you know, you see what I mean? So yes. so whoever got me the award, I've, I've got half an inkling who did, but they would have had to say, you know, why this person has um, contributed to the veterinary to veterinary science and support the veterinary industry. And um, so that was quite nice for another profession to give me an award, really. Yes. But yes. I, I think my proudest moment was passing my fellowship exam. You know, there's still only about, and the exam's been going on, um, it'll be 100 years old in, in, in 2023. Mm-hmm. And there's less than one a year past it. I know we're a very specialist and small craft, but um, uh, we haven't got anybody in Australia, I have to tell you, but we've got three or four in America and one in Denmark that are fellows. Mm-hmm. So it's not an exclusively UK thing, and it's um, it's a tough exam, really. And I now examine it, you know, so I'm, I sit the other side of the desk. But, um, <laughs> that, that's, that's normally our examiners in, in the UK have to be a fellow, and... And we've had a, a sort of small flush of about 10 in the last five years passing, which is unusual. And we've got some great, when I say young farriers, I mean sort of 35 to 40 to me, they're young. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and a couple of them, a couple of them are women. Uh, both of them are called Sarah and both come from Scotland. So I don't know how confusing <laughs> that gets. But obviously, if you're, a, if you're called Sarah and you come from Scotland, then you've got an immediate um, advantage as a farrier, I think. If you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor, or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now. Have a look. Horsechats.com. All right. Now, I'm thinking about challenges. You know, you've obviously had challenges in your career, but I'm also thinking about challenges for, you know, we're in the 21st century now. You know, has there been changes what changes, what challenges. Can you talk about that, whether it's you or or your occupation generally, you know, the type of challenges that people face? Well, yeah, I mean, my personal challenges, you've sort of half listed, um, you know, you've listed most of them. Um, but from the point of view of the industry, uh, we are still searching for a better way to shoe horses, and that's why there's this plethora of types of glue-on shoes. Mm-hmm. Because I think if the horse was invented today and somebody said, well, it doesn't grip the ground quite well enough and it wears its hooves out sometimes, what are you going to do about it? If I said, well, I'm going to bang some nails through a piece of metal on the bottom of your horse, <laughs> you'd have said, yeah, you know, take a, take a walk. Um, so I think, uh, you know, in, in lots of industries, um, gluing has replaced screws and nailing in all sorts of engineering and carpentry and and lots. The problem we have at the moment is that it's still too expensive and too complex. You know, if your horse has to have shoes glued on, it's going to cost three or four times what uh, the the conventional way, the traditional way of shoeing. So that holds things up. Now, of course, knocking nails in the hoof is not without its risks. So obviously that's removed by gluing, but it produces other effects on the hoof. Uh, most of the shoes designed at the moment that are glued actually restrict the hoof's movement at the back of the foot. 
the reason we, we shoe at the front of the foot, we put nails in, is to allow the back of the foot, where most of the movement is, to move. So you have this uh, secondary effect of, um, of restricting movement, which you can sort of get away if you, with, if you only glue on once or twice. But if it's long term, you start to have detrimental effects to the shape of the hoof and the way it works. And so we haven't actually got past that point yet. Um, um, there, there's been little things, and they are little things. You know, we've, we've been shoeing horses for 2,000 years, so a lot of the invention went on in the first couple of hundred years, almost certainly. Um, but even we've got the introduction of copper-coated nails, which suddenly came about in the last few years. And there is some science to that, that if you put a nail, which is basically iron or steel, into the hoof first you penetrate of course the hoof so you allow microbes in but a lot of those microbes actually like iron if you look at um old piers in the water that sludgy stuff all around these metal piers is actually bacteria and so you you sort of are feeding the bacteria in the hoof now if you coat the nail with copper uh, you are producing a barrier but also copper of course has as has to some extent, an antimicrobial effect. You know, we know that, don't we? With lots of things with copper. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so that's a funny little thing that's happened that suddenly came up in the last few years. And the main nail manufacturers are all coating their nails with copper, and they, you know, they cost a few cents more each. And but the owners like them because they look pretty. I'd have to say they they're these sort <laughs> of. And um, you know, the num- I don't shoe many now, but. I use copper nails. They are always happy. Oh, they look so nice, you know, and I'm like, well, that isn't quite the point, but okay. Yeah, yes, and I think it's probably ongoing. It's after I talk to you again, you know, next year, you might be saying something else as well. Yeah, well, yeah. the other thing, of course, is the, the knowledge of the effect of shoeing and the gait of the horse. There has been an acceleration in our knowledge. You know, I don't want to do down other in, universities in Australia, but certainly, again, up at you know, Brisbane at the University of Queensland, that's one of the top spots mm-hmm. uh, in the world. There's Utrecht in Holland, um, two or three of them in the UK. Um, that You know, they normally attach to the veterinary colleges, um, Bristol University, but especially London is going great things with their structure and motion lab. And, um, oh, you know, a couple in America, Michigan University. So there are these spots where they start to analyse the horse far more its gait. And then, of course, once you've analysed the gait, you start saying, "What? how does shoeing affect it? How does trimming affect it? Mm-hmm. Uh, again, you know, first of all, is it detrimental? Is it beneficial? You know, and so there has been some science that's starting to be added. And, of course, then the problem is how do you disseminate it to the farriers, you know, via conferences and what have you and, and clinics and workshops and say, look, this is what we've learned. I mean, that's one of the things I'm doing in Australia in my trips this year, you know, yeah. it's trying to dis some of the information from my PhD. Okay. And and you know, and, and, and actually universities really are quite strong on that, that you're supposed to try and use it in your industry. In other words, it's not supposed to be this just ivory tower where you're just learning for learning's sake. It's mm. every year in my PhD I had to answer, you know, to my university and say, what impact might this have on my industry? So I think that's a good thing that that, that they say that. You know, and um, I would some say sometimes you have to over-egg the cake a little bit. And, you know, you, very few things change the world that we're in, especially, you know, I would say the horse world is very traditional and the farriers are the most traditional part of it. So okay. changing okay. those things is sometimes an effort. 
Yeah. What about barefoot? You know, because there sort of seems to be a, I won't say a revival, but, but, you know, a lot of people are really pushing the barefoot. And yeah, I mean, you, okay, well, I'm sure there's situations, but there's other. Or you, you talk about that anyway. Okay, here's the thing. I now only shoe seven horses, but I have about 150 that I trim. Okay. Yeah. I've really cut down, you know, I'm semi retired. Mm. Horses are not born with shoes. So, you know, and they lived for 30 million years without our help. So, why do we shoe horses? So, so the easiest thing that, should we say, barefoot people say is, well, what do they do in the wild? Well, they used to sell us this story that everything was perfect in the wild. And the answer to that, which showed that it's not true, again, came from Australia. It came from Queensland University, where they studied the Brumbies. Now, in some areas of Australia, the Brumbies, they're sure. Mm-hmm. They get all the problems and sometimes more hoof problems than our domestic horses get. But we had sort of 20 years of this utopia and everything has to be natural and free. And it's just not true, you know, and it's been proven scientifically to be untrue. So if your horse can cope without shoes, then, yeah, why shoe it? But if you're expecting it to do all sorts of unusual things, and most of the things we do with horses are unusual to horses, you know, tight turns and jumping and things that they would do very seldom in nature, if we're expecting them to do that and have somebody on their back or pull something, and we need to help them. And um, shoeing helps in, in about three ways, really. It, um, it protects the foot from wear. So if you have a horse that's getting a lot of wear, obviously that was the reason shoeing was invented. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives grip. You know, so when we're on these different surfaces, whether it's a road or an indoor arena, then, um, and we're expecting the horse to perform, then we need to give it additional grip, and we can do that with a shoe. And then, of course, the third thing is purchase, which is slightly different to grip, which is what propels the horse along. And again, um, the design of the shoe will help it stick its toe into the ground, shall we say, and, and push itself along. And um, so all those things help the horse. And I actually think, um, I think at times it's inhumane to expect the horse to do some of the things and not shoe them. So, I mean, the barefooters, I'd have to say, they, it, it's sometimes difficult to confront a simple lie with a complex truth. Mm-hmm. And the sort of simple lie is, well, horses aren't born with shoes, but nor are they born with somebody on their back and a bit in their mouth and us expecting to do all sorts of things with them. So shoeing will help your horse perform better and it's good for it. Now, if you leave the shoes on too long, or you don't have a well-trained farrier, then, of course, there can easily be a detrimental effect from, from the shoeing. But if you have a well-trained farrier and you have your horses shod regularly, then, then you will – I mean, that's the great thing. Horse owners usually notice the benefits because they can actually feel the horse going better, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, when, they, when, they're, when they're well shod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor, or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now. Have a look. Horsechats.com. There's a lot that we've covered, Simon. We've brilliant. Yep. You know, I mean, I love the depth of knowledge that you've got because you're just able to whatever question you just give a really <laughs> thorough explanation. So, you know, thank you for that. It's been excellent talking to you. But what are you looking forward to now? What have you got planned? You know, thinking about in your future. Uh, okay, so 
lots of trips, as I say, not mm-hmm. just to Australia and New Zealand. I'm off to Denmark next week um, to do a thing with the farriers there, which is only a short hour and a half journey for us. From <laughs> okay, yes. Um, but um, And up to Iceland. I've never been to Iceland. I'm booked there in September, so that's mm-hmm. nice. To, so in other words, it, it's really wonderful when people pay my flights and trips to see all sorts of great parts of the world. Um, I myself have started doing podcasts, should we say even more specialist than yours, uh, with Farriers. I started yes. that in September. Great okay, fun. good, good. And we sort of building what's the an name of it? Uh, that's um, the Hoof of the Horse podcasts. Good. But anyway, so it's the same name as my book. Mm-hmm. There's obvious reason. The Hoof of the Horse. Anybody that puts the Hoof of the Horse podcast in or Simon Curtis podcast, um, the only word of warning is there's there's a better known film director called Simon Curtis and musician called Simon <laughs> Curtis. But you, sometimes you need to put Farrier alongside okay. it and then you okay. me. So that's one thing. I'm working on two other books concurrently. Um, you know, I've always done these niche books, but hopefully we will have a general textbook out for Farriers. Mm-hmm. And then I'm doing a, a photography project because I'm trying to capture the horse world all around the world because I have these opportunities and I, I need to take them, you know. So, so I've tried to improve my photography and uh, capture it as much as possible. But I'm, I'm hoping that a book will come out of that at some point. Good. So Good. Lots, of, lots of things for the future, really. Well, things I, I can look forward to anyway. So, um, yeah, when you've got another book, we certainly need to talk to you again so we can um, talk about the book. Now, what's you know your uh, if you go to horsechats.com and search for Simon or search for Curtis or even search for Farry, you'll find the link to your page. And at the bottom of the page, we put down your contact details. But can you tell us your contact details? What's the best way for people to get hold of you? Uh, well, Facebook. I'm Simon J Curtis mm-hmm. on Facebook. As I say, I I do have a, a website for my books, and if you put Curtis Farrier books in, up it will come. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's easy and they they have my contact on there they have my um you know my email address which again is just curtis farrier at gmail.com okay so there's a bit of a theme running through those really isn't there <laughs> <laughs> yes yes look i love talking to you you know very passionate about what you've done and you've done all you know your whole life and i know that you didn't get into it really from 16, but I'm sure that even the chat at the dinner table, you know, when your father or your uncles were there and they were talking about horses, you, you might have, um, you know, picked up that as I'm well. Sure so, that, yeah. I'm sure this may have been the little boy thing of looking up to your father, you know. And yes, yes. So all things really. Yeah. All right. Now, before you go, can you summarise your philosophy with horses, with shoeing, with um, horses' feet, just into a bit of a lesson today before we say goodbye? Um, I think, okay, well, the best thing, the best advice to horse owners for their horses is get a good farrier and put your horse on wood shines. Um, My philosophy, I think, has uh, been don't do this job if you don't love horses, Um, but then work hard and enjoy it. It gives you a wonderful life. Mm, I think good advice, good advice. Thanks very much for chatting to us today and we'll hopefully talk to you very soon. All right, Glennis, thank you very much. Bye then. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe.
If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below 